just wanted to um, say good morning to everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Pastor Rob, and uh, I have the joy of opening the Word of God with you. Did want to take a minute and um, just affirm Pastor James. He's doing a great job. That second service family service has been going excellently. I've sat in there several times um, with the kids and families and there is so much life and vitality when there's little kids running in the church, you know, doing all the things that you're kind of like, I don't know if you should do that, but your kids, so you don't know any better. They're doing great. And I have a joke for the kids this morning uh, that my daughter Lexi hit me with this week. And I think you guys will like it too. Why did the chicken cross the road? You can talk behind the masks. I'm just going to keep reminding this. To get to the other side, no, to go hunting. Knock, knock. The chicken. (laughs) All right, that was a corny dad joke. And you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, Acts 1. If you don't know where that is in the scriptures, the back third of the Bible is the New Testament. The first four books of that New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we come to the book of Acts. Now this summer, our family had some time together on vacation. It was great. And one of the activities that we engaged in on vacation was a high ropes course. If you've never done that before, it's basically climbing up a tree somewhere in the neighborhood of between 25 feet and 50 feet and then engaging in a course while you're strapped in up there. And of course, while you're doing this, your brain is screaming at you saying, you are about to fall to your bloody death. It's a great time. Now, my kids were like mountain goats. They're frolicking along the ropes. They climb up the tree like it's nothing, and they have that feather-like weight. So when they're belaying back down, they just glide. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but they did a really good job. And while they were engaging in this, I was too chicken to get up there, I was talking to one of the staff members. And we noticed that quite a few people would be climbing up the tree, and somewhere along the way, they would seize up with fear. They'd get stuck. They couldn't keep going. And she looked at one person who was stuck on the tree, and she looked over at me and said, yeah, actually, I'm just like that person. And I was like, really? Oh, yeah. I've never made it past that first platform. Every time I try to get up that tree, I get stuck somewhere along the way. Really? I mean, you're belaying us. I would think that you would be incredible at this. She said, no. I want to do it. It looks exhilarating up there, but I just can't get past my fear of heights. I mean, let's just put this all together for a minute, okay? Here you have someone who's looking down from the bottom up at the exhilaration of this high ropes course and what's happening up there, wishing that they could be up there, but stuck in fear. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought to myself, isn't that true for many Christians when it comes to the mission? 
So many of us, we hear messages. We know that mission is a core foundation to the faith. And yet, when it comes to the thought of us engaging in the mission, we say to ourselves, no way. I'm locked up in fear. I can't do this. We're stuck. And it's not just some Christians, it's most Christians. If you look at statistics with regard to evangelism, 90% or more of Christians have never shared their faith with anyone outside of their family. Now, I was thinking about this too, because if the pre-COVID church was susceptible to getting stuck, how much more is the COVID church susceptible to it? There's so many things that are causing fear in our lives and sometimes I look at the church and I think to myself, we're still a church on lockdown, even though there's been restrictions that have been lifted. We're not physically locked up, down, but we're mentally. We're waiting for something, right? Something to happen that's just going to change the scenario altogether and then we'll go back to normal. Maybe it's a vaccine. Maybe it's a therapeutic. But I got to tell you, I don't know if we're going to be waiting for a long time, if we're waiting for something specific that's going to change everything. I don't know if that's coming, or at least not in the way we want it to come. Now, we should never throw caution to the wind. That's not a good idea. It's wise to be smart about the way we live our lives. But the church was never meant to be stuck the church was founded on the principle of inertia. It's supposed to be moving. And if the church doesn't move, the church becomes aimless. And if the church is aimless, the church flounders. We've talked about these core realities, haven't we? We've talked about the Messiah. We've talked about the mission or the, the message. And today we're talking about the mission. And next week we'll see the Members, And the big question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is, how do we get unstuck? How do we get back on mission? We talked about the idea of a restart. And I'm hoping as we look at Acts this morning that we'll feel re-energized around this mission. So let's take a look at Jesus' words in the book of Acts, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So let's start with those two first two verses with the idea of refocusing. Now, this passage represents the final dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples before he ascends. He's standing in Bethany, which is the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And we know that last words are important words. Now, they ask a logical question. Some people look at this text and think, oh, they're, they're getting a little off target here. They're getting distracted by squirrels. They want to know about the end, and Jesus has other things going on. But you have to understand Jewish expectation. The Jewish expectation is that when the Messiah comes, and especially this promise of the Holy Spirit, that the end comes. 
that that's the final act. Everything's coming to a head. And so they ask him, when's this going to happen? Well, here's the thing. It's not that all of these eschatological, which means last things, wouldn't be fulfilled. It's just that it's not going to happen on the disciples' timeline. They were stuck on nationalistic concerns. They longed for the day when national Israel would be the big kid on the block, when the oppressors would leave Jerusalem, and they would have once again control of the city. And no one was thinking about a mission. No one. Now, before departing, Jesus provides the corrective in verse 7. He says this, It's not for you to know the times and seasons. You got that? Is that clear? You mean anything different than that? No. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That the Father by his own authority. Now, I want us to see something in this corrective before we move past it. Jesus does not reject the premise of the question. He doesn't reject the idea that there will be an end, that there will be a fulfillment to biblical prophecy. Some people look at Jesus' words and say, oh, that must be non-literal. He must have meant that this is the age that we're to be in. But what he does is he changes the focus. And when it comes to biblical prophecy, when it comes to end times, there tends to be two extremes on a spectrum. One extreme deals with extreme concern for it. Fanaticism. You're thinking about it all the time. It's all there is to the Christian life. On the other end of the spectrum is no concern. And Jesus' corrective deals with balance in that spectrum. Now think about the disciples. They're fixating on it. They want to know the exact hour when Jesus will bring about the kingdom. And that, that certainly has been a part of the Christian experience for many years. Uh, I, I've been walking with Christ for, you know, 20 or so years. And I've heard a lot of dates even in that short time, you talk to my father going back now 50, 60 years of walking with Christ. He's heard a lot of dates about when the end's coming. And you know what that does? It just confuses and distracts Christians when that date comes and it passes by. Because they're taking it on authority from this person who's saying, this is on the authority of the word of God that this is the date. And they're getting confused, and they're saying to themselves, is the Bible not accurate? Is it not true? That's not the case, because here we see that's not what the Bible says. On the same topic, though, is the idea of overly reading into current events biblical prophecy. I've seen several election cycles now where when the political candidate of choice for a particular Christian doesn't win, they start saying to themselves, this person's the Antichrist. And they're not kidding. They believe it. I love Harry's principle. He shared this a couple years ago. When he was preaching through prophecy in Matthew. He says, examine current events in light of biblical prophecy. Do not read biblical prophecy into current events. 
Now let's think about the other end of the spectrum, the no concern end. Because biblical prophecy tends to be more controversial, there's different views with regard to these end time events. Some churches, some Christians say, well, we probably just shouldn't talk about this at all. Let's just avoid the subject altogether. I was looking at a recent uh, LifeWay research survey, and they were asking questions of pastors about end times, and one of them was this, which of the following statements best describes your view on when the biblical rapture will occur? And then they went through the normal views. You had the pre, the mid, the post, and some other iteration of those views. But one of the comments or responses that was concerning to me was that 25% of pastors stated that the concept of the rapture should not be taken literally. Now, why is that a problem? Well, because end times prophecy is core doctrine in the church. It's core. Uh, The purpose of prophecy, though, is not to satisfy our individual curiosities about when and where and all of those kind of things. We shouldn't be asking so much the question of when, we should be asking the question of why. Why is biblical prophecy in the Bible? And the answer that we see, the Bible is clear, we are given biblical prophecy to encourage the church to remain faithful until Christ returns. That's why it's there. We are like that servant that is entrusted with the responsibility of running the master's house. And the big question is, how will he find us? Is he going to find us kind of being mean to the other servants and drunk when he returns? Or will he find us faithful? Now, what does faithful look like? Well, Jesus answers that question, a big part of that question, in the next verse, Acts 1.8. Look at what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the, the, the explanation around what it means to be faithful. So instead of worrying about the end of the plan, the church is going to be equipped by the Holy Spirit to take the message to the end of the earth. That's the refocus. And this mission represents the church's fundamental call. In fact, as you look at the book of Acts, the the geographical scope that's explained in Acts 1-8 is a rough outline of the book of Acts. Uh, The first seven chapters of Acts deal with the church being formed in Jerusalem and taking root. And then you move from there to chapters 8 through 12. And after a, a, a series of persecutions, the church expands into the region of Judea and Samaria. And then the apostle Paul comes to faith. And then Acts 13 through 28 is the gospel going to the ends of the earth. This is the key verse to the book of Acts. And it's also a key verse to the Christian experience, the experience of the church. I love these words from Daryl Bach, one of the foremost experts on the book of Acts. He says, the priority for the church until Jesus returns, a mission of which the community must never lose sight, is to witness to Jesus to the end of the earth 
the church exists in major part to extend the apostolic witness to Jesus everywhere. In fact, the church does not have a mission. It is to be missional and is a mission. You see, without the mission, a church isn't a church. It's just a social gathering with the label Christian on it. Now, I want us to change our view, our perception of what church is. And, And one way to do this is to envision what we are through a helpful analogy that J.D. Greer gives us. Now, how should we view the church? Do you view the church as a cruise liner, a battleship, or an aircraft carrier? Now, let's think about the cruise liner mentality. The church is a luxury getaway, an oasis from the world. I give some of my money, and then I receive the experience of what the church has to offer. And boy, does it offer something for everyone. There's something for the kids. There's entertaining services, good music, networking relationships, good friendships. The cruise liner passenger comes to church asking, can this church improve my religious quality of life? Does it have a good family facility? Does the pastor deliver the punchline of the joke in just the right way? Does it meet my felt needs? Now, a battleship is different. It's made for war. This type of church views its success in how loudly and dramatically it fights the mission. The role of the church member is to pay the pastor so that he can target where the battlefront is and he can fire the guns each week and the church just kind of sits there and watches that happen. So the mission of the church is accomplished through the programs, the services, and the ministries of the church. But Greer offers an alternative analogy, the aircraft carrier. Now, when you think about an aircraft carrier, it engages in battle differently than a battleship, doesn't it? The aircraft carrier does not want the front of the battle to come to the aircraft carrier. If the guns are firing at the aircraft carrier, there's a big problem. So what does it do? It resources and equips planes to take the battle away from the aircraft carrier. And I would suggest to you that that is the appropriate view of the church. If we are going to be the type of church that prevails against the gates of hell, then we need to view ourselves in this way. We come to church on Sunday morning in order to get resourced so that we can go out and fly to where the battle is. Another way that it's been thought of is we gather on Sunday mornings to worship Jesus and then we scatter to go take the mission to the world. Or another way it's been thought of, the church comes together and Sunday morning is the huddle. It's where you receive the game plan, where coach says, all right, guys, this is the strategy for the week. And then Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, the church goes out and executes the plays. And the church must never adopt the 80-20 principle, where 80% of the church watches 20% of the church do the work. Now, this is an all-in kind of thing. 
This is the type of work where every single plane must leave the hangar and go into the mission field. And that field, Jesus explains to us, is a geographical scope in our mind, right? It's a Jerusalem, a Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, many of us, when we hear Jesus speak about that, think of it in terms of steps. I start with Jerusalem, and then at some point I get into Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And certainly that happens in Acts, but I believe that he doesn't want us to think of that as a sequence of steps. I believe he wants us to think of it simultaneously. The church has a local ministry, a regional ministry, and a ministry to the ends of the earth. That's why uh, when we're thinking about mission here, we're not just thinking about personal evangelism, but we're also thinking about church planting in the New England region. And we're also thinking about equipping and sending missionaries to go to the field. All three of those different fronts of ministry matter simultaneously. Now, I want to take a minute and shift gears here. We've been flying 30,000 feet in the air. We've been looking at the big picture, haven't we? And it looks great up at 30,000 feet in the air. But the thing is, is as you absorb principles from up high, sometimes they never make them their way down to the ground level. So I want us to be asking the question, well, how do I get unstuck? How do I get missional as the church? We don't want to be like that staff member. We don't want to be watching everyone up on the course, think of how great it would be to be up there and yet remaining stuck on the ground. So we've got to think about tangible ways that we, the church, can be engaged in mission. And it all begins first with the gospel and witness. Okay, Jesus said in Acts 1-8, right, you will be my witnesses. Now, witness is to be understood in legal sense, a legal sense, a testimony that's delivered in court. Uh, the first witnesses were the apostles, weren't they? They bore witness to the earthly ministry of Jesus and the resurrection. And as eyewitnesses, they were the ones who could speak authentically to what had happened through the life and ministry of Jesus. But that role or responsibility of witness then gets transferred onto the church. How? Through the word of God. Because the apostles have left us their witness, their testimony of what happened in the historic life and events of Jesus. And so my job as a Christian is to know this, believe this, and be able to communicate this to other people in a compelling way. That's the job. The member's job is to be able to communicate the message about the Messiah. That's the mission. So one way that we do this here, one of my big jobs on my job description is to equip you. Ephesians 4.12 says the pastor equips the saints for the work of the ministry, and that's part of the staff's job here too. Uh, we want to be an aircraft carrier. We want to equip the planes to go out and fly. Uh, we've been doing this through the years uh, 
Praise God that Harry's come on our team as a missionary at large, and one of his roles is actually to help us think through evangelism. Two years ago, we had an evangelism conference, and 80 to 90 of you came. That was fantastic. We were actually setting up another one of those conferences when, lo and behold, a worldwide global pandemic hit. Go figure. And we decided to pivot. We were going to initially hold it online, and we said, you know, I, I think people are burned out with this whole webinar, Zoom online thing. So instead of doing that, we decided to professionally film a series that Harry called Principles for Effective Evangelism. It's a five-part series. You know what's beautiful about this? That series is accessible to you all the time. Any in the church can go through it. You should go through it once. You should choose it as a refresher course once a year. Thrive groups, discipleship, activate women's Bible study. You can encourage your members to use this. This is how you get yourself ready for the mission. Paul said in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are you to preach if you don't know what to say? Now, let's take the gospel from witness now to tangible contexts. A lot of us think of the gospel as being somewhere out there. That's where ministry happens. But it turns out that the church, the first church, understood the gospel to be right at their front door. And that's why the gospel and hospitality is so important. You know, church, we have so many relationships where we can invite people into our homes, where we can offer them our friendship and extend the love of Jesus to them. I think some of the best gospel conversations happen around the dinner table or in the backyard around a fire pit because people in this increasingly secularizing culture need to see that you're real. They need to see that your faith makes a difference in your life and they've got big questions. And the only context or space that makes sense for those questions to be answered is in a home setting where it's comfortable. Now, let's think as well about the gospel and family. Because I believe that the family is a mission field. Uh, Katie and I, as we think about our family, consider it critical that we view our family as a serious spiritual missionary work. If you ask Katie, what's your job? She would say something along these lines. I am a missionary to an unreached people group. We call them the Wheeler children. Now, some of them, I believe, have trusted Christ, but it's still our responsibility. It's still our burden, our prayer and none of us will take it for granted that all of our kids will grow up and follow Jesus. That's how much more important it is to be praying and to be investing, isn't it? I also believe that this family idea gives us a, a bigger picture of how we should invite children who don't have homes into our family. The ministry of adoption, the ministry of fostering. And, and we're not just doing this for the sake of evangelism. No, we're doing it to show the love of Christ to children that need homes. My prayer for Ostrovo Baptist, we've had several parents that have engaged in adoption, but I pray many more will. 
the second century church, one way that they fundamentally changed the Roman Empire, get this, they rescued and raised unwanted children. Let's talk about the gospel and work. We all have a major calling, uh, two major callings, in fact. One is the call to your vocation, whatever that is. It is some place where you have been called for the glory of God and the blessing of others to seek the common good, to bring about human flourishing. The other calling is the call to make disciples. That's what we're talking about here in the Great Commission. So at any time when I'm thinking about my life, I must be asking myself two big questions. One, what skill has God given me by which I can bless the world? And then two, where and how can I do it most strategically to advance the gospel? I love this expression that a church uses when it thinks about work and mission. Whatever you're good at, do it well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. We have a mission field called work that we can be participating in every day. Uh, One thing that I'm praying for for this area, Cape Cod, it's such a transient area. A lot of people come into the church, they invest in the church for a couple of years, and for whatever reason, they move. But I'm praying that God will raise up men and women who feel called to be here, who find jobs where they can lay their skill set here and reach this very unreached area for the gospel of Jesus. Let's think about the gospel and generosity. Uh, One of the reasons this is a big value for us at OVC is because God uses generous Christians to advance his work. He uses generous Christians. Does he need generous Christians? No. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But he uses generous Christians to advance his work. And and then that's in a, a... host of ways, right? It involves our time, our talent, and our treasures. But the financial component is so important, isn't it? Back in February, we adopted this as a value, and we really put flesh on it when, as a church, we voted together and said, we want to do things for the sake of generosity, for the mission of God. And we voted to Uh, fund Josh Wilson and Allie Wilson with church planting for $10,000. And then we moved from there and Josh Freeman was going to Togo, West Africa to the mission field. And so we voted for $8,000 to send him into the mission field. The pandemic hit and we pivoted a little bit. We looked at a principle from Galatians 6.10, which says that you should take care of the household of God. And we developed a family relief plan where members in the church who are undergoing economic crisis could have their financial needs met. And then we did a partnership with the community where those frontline hospital workers were working day in and day out, and we provided meals to them and also supported a local business. But now the big question is what's God calling us to do next? What's next? Because again, He doesn't want a stuck church. He doesn't want an aimless church. He doesn't want a floundering church. And I had to say, 
I don't know if I have the answer to that question yet, but we are an aircraft carrier. There's many planes on this ship. And if you have something that God's laid on your heart in terms of generosity that you believe would greatly advance his cause in the world, I want you to reach out and let me know because we need to continue to pursue this church. We were doing some really cool things and I want to see us do more cool things. Lastly, I want us to look at the gospel and the worldwide missions. Every Christian should be a world Christian. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't just be wrapped up in our local concerns. We need to be wrapped up in God's global concerns. Now, what that means for some of us is there are some Christians in this church that are called to go. We just saw Becky and Corey. They were called to go to Romania. And I believe there's others in this church right now who are called to go. But many of us are called to stay. So staying is a support ministry, ascending ministry, where you take care of the needs of missionaries who go out. And I got to tell you, some of us are called to stay, and yet we're still instrumentally involved in worldwide missions. One person that comes to mind in particular is Olga Smith. Uh, Olga went on a missions trip with me and the youth group six, seven years ago to Togo, West Africa. And she was instrumental to us getting there. She has a great administrative gift. And she saw to all the details that would help us get to Togo, West Africa. She's over there. She forms a relationship with our missionary couple, JJ and Melissa Alderman. And so beyond that time, Dean, Olga, and the family form a relationship. They provide care to this missionary couple, pray for them regularly. And now... Olga serves on JJ and Melissa's team. She's involved in getting interns placed over in Togo, West Africa. You see that? She's staying in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and yet she's uh, an instrumental link in the chain of getting missionaries to go to Togo, West Africa. And I'd be remiss, too, if I didn't mention our missions committee, who does an incredible job. Uh, Armin had mentioned we support 13 missionaries. They think critically about why we're partnering with these missionaries. They care for them. They pray for them. I'm also praying that in a year from now or two years from now that God will send a couple of short-term teams from Osterville Baptist Church so that we can get more of our members into the work of missions. One defining moment in my life up to this point involved conquering the fear of heights in my 20s. I wouldn't say I've completely conquered it, but I learned something significant about it. It involved a challenge called the 757 Challenge. This is a challenge where you climb a pole that is 50 feet tall. There's a little 12-inch square box. You stand on that while you're belayed in, of course. And then your, your, your task is to jump out and catch a trapeze bar that is seven feet out and seven feet high. Now, when I was ascending this 50-foot pole, of course, my emotions are screaming at me as I'm going up. They're saying, you're an idiot. What are you doing right now? You're too beautiful to die. 
And my brain is saying something different. My brain's saying, no, dummy, you're fine. You're strapped into a harness that's rated at 5,000 pounds. You've had a couple of extra donuts lately, but you're fine. And yeah, that college boy down there is staring off at that college girl. But when he feels the tension of your fall, he'll catch you. You're going to be all right. And in that moment, I learned something valuable. When you are afraid of something and you get stuck, you can take control back one step at a time. Instead of locking up, I chose to turn off the emotions and listen to the brain because the brain's right. I was safe. I could complete the challenge. Likewise, in Acts, Jesus said something about the mission that should give you encouragement and strength to know that you can complete it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And church, that's far better than a 5,000-pound rated harness because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and he is with you, he's in you, he equips you for the skills that you will need for the mission, he enables you with giving you wisdom when the time comes to be the witness, and he's changing you to be just like Jesus in word and deed. So don't let your emotions keep you from experiencing the joy and the exhilaration of being involved in the mission. Trust Jesus when he said, you will receive power. Let's pray. As we close, I'm reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Thou art the blessed God, happy in thyself, source of happiness in thy creatures, my maker, benefactor, proprietor, upholder. Thou hast produced and sustained me, supported and indulged me, saved and kept me. Thou art in every situation able to meet my needs and miseries. May I live by thee, live for thee, never be satisfied with my Christian progress, but as I resemble Christ. And may conformity to his principles, temper, and conduct grow hourly in my life. Let thy unexampled love constrain me into holy obedience and render my duty my delight. If others deem my faith folly, my meekness infirmity, my zeal madness, my hope delusion, my actions hypocrisy. May I rejoice to suffer for thy name. Keep me walking steadfastly towards the country of everlasting delights, that promised land which is my true inheritance. Support me by the strength of heaven that I may never turn back or desire false pleasures that wilt and disappear into nothing. As I pursue my heavenly journey by thy grace, let me be known as a man with no aim but that of a burning desire for thee and the good and salvation of my fellow men. Amen.